Hello. I'm Bogey. I'm Brian. I'm Q. And we're Meaningful. An agency that helps brands find a meaningful place in the world. Today, we're chatting with Hobbs Marguerite, founder of Sisters Cattle Company, rethinking the way we look at cows and the environment. Let's do this. Hey guys, can you hear me? We can. Yes, we can. Well, good morning to both of you. I'm kind of disappointed you're not out in the field. (laughs) (laughs) How'd you guys get inspired to get this thing going? Well, um, one of the things we wanted to do with this podcast is uh, just talk founders, CEOs, CMOs, and talk to them about their company, their brand, and do it in a way where... um, there, there was a kind of a lively exchange of ideas and possibilities and almost like a brand consultation for free. We just thought that'd be fun to do in real time, uh, not lay claim to ownership about anything and just have a, have a round table, just a caffeinated discussion about, um, in this case, your brand and see where that goes. And we thought, you know, that'll do its work over time. Somebody will see it. They'll go, those, those guys look interesting. I want to talk to them. So kind of give it away and figure at some point it'll, it'll come back. So okay. that's the, the name Meaningful and the podcast Be Meaningful is really, um, it's so important for a brand to position itself within the context of um, what's happening in society and then also what's happening in people. And that is usually pretty immutable. It doesn't change. People are pretty... Uh, timeless in how they operate and how they process information and uh, the need for narrative and everything. But the context is always changing. Like, right, the last, the last seven, eight months is a context nobody was, nobody had on their radar. And now, I mean, the behavior is changing. Uh, the change that was already underway has accelerated because of the pandemic, as you probably know firsthand with e-commerce, um, that's dialed up and that behavior, some of that's going to stick. It's spiked and it's going to plateau. It's going to stay there. So what's happening with that? And how do you make sure that your brand is positioned in a way that's meaningful for those kinds of uh, new behaviors and new affinities that people have? Um, I'd love to, uh, I know, Brian, if you want to jump in and talk about, a little bit about kind of how we how we came across Sisters Cattle. Like that was, that's an interesting story. You shared, yeah. you shared, you shared this with me. I'm like, who are these, who are these guys? This is cool. And then I, we kind of dived in and then we, you know, we took a look at the website, we took a look at the TikTok. I'm like, I like this guy. I, th- I want to talk to this guy. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram and, you know, I'm getting constant feeds on, um, you know, watches for scuba divers and surfers and the most comfortable pants in the world and, and uh, things like that. And then I see an ad with cattle and I'm thinking like, what the hell's this? And, and you so quickly told the story of the food industry and the mass production and the processing, um, which I'm familiar with because, just a little side note, um, I actually created the beef it's what's for dinner campaign going way back. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, um, so, well, and you told the story uh, pretty quickly, which was great, right? That, that this is, this is, you know, they, they truck them in, they feed them this stuff, they're standing in mud and all of a sudden the contrast are, we have happy cows eating and then the long list of ingredients 
um, I just thought that was great. And I said, I want to check this out. Then I went to the website and then I saw, uh, I, and then went to the Bend uh, video, the cable company video or Oregon East or whatever. That was, that was a great little piece. I mean, you must've been happy with that. I, I thought that that came out well. Um, and then uh, your TikTok. So <laughs> I gotta like a guy that drinks three creeks. I, I have to. <laughs> I just have to throw that out there, man. Their chocolate, their chocolate porter is probably the best. So that's all. Yeah, well, got to represent sisters local. There you go. Absolutely. Cut us off anytime, right? I'm I'm New York, so I just step on people, and that's part of my weird way of showing affection. Um, so <laughs> you just said local, right? You're you're pretty regional, pretty local, yet you said in that video that someday you envision 10,000 or 11,000 cattle across national parks. Yeah. Just just throw the vision out there because I don't think you're just throwing that out there flippantly. I think you really believe you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. I believe I can do it. Um, what's going to need uh, to happen for that to become a reality is for people to, number one, stop uh, seeing beef as a commodity first and foremost and start seeing beef and cattle themselves as an eco necessity as carbon cyclers i mean the uh we have a massive problem that our that our our forests particularly on the west coast are just going up in flames and um you know if we do nothing then i mean i, I made a tiktok video about this that you have a few years of really nice grass once a fire goes through and then it becomes shrubs and then it becomes overcrowded forest again and then the cycle is going to repeat itself and in 50 to 100 years it's going to burn again and the ideal forest type is more of a um more dense savanna where it's really thickly treed but the sunlight can still make its way to the forest floor and that's an extremely effective ecosystem and the areas where they do allow grazing they're not using the system that the that the mother nature has created, which is herds moving, because we don't have the predators for that, because that's what the herd effect is. You have predators keeping everybody bunched up, moving around constantly. And that, that's the system that mother nature put in place to create 14 mm -hmm. feet of topsoil in Illinois when the settlers first got there, right. you know? And so if we can view cattle as an eco necessity first and then beef uh, producers as a uh, as a byproduct of that then you know people are going to be begging to get um i mean there's going to be a revolution of of herdsmen and and cowboys um to really improve our our forest health i mean we're going to have to do a lot of really uh, intensive studies and we're going to have to work really closely with really smart people to make sure that we're not causing more damage and we're doing things that are going to be really productive but um I think as if people can really start to understand that that cattle have a special fermentation tank in their body, which is designed to cycle carbon, and they eat eight hours a day, which is an indication that it's not just about them feeding themselves, it's about them uh, performing an ecological cycle, then mm -hmm. we will, people's minds will open to the possibility of of cattle being used in a much more strategic way that will really help our forest health. And then it will put so much more carbon in the ground.
I'm just curious. I don't want to get derailed, but <laughs> did you study this or is, are you just self-taught on this? Uh, well, self-taught on the regenerative aspect. I'm, my, my family has been cattle ranching uh, since the 1800s, uh, mm-hmm. as far back as we know. So, you know, I, I have an under, you know, probably some epigenetic activation for looking at, <laughs> at cattle and, and understanding yeah. what's going on there. But I was actually out of the ca- cattle industry for about 10 years in my 20s. And I was a vegetarian at one point because I couldn't reconcile uh, my heritage with how cattle were being treated and the environmental cost. But then when I learned about regenerative agriculture, man, I dove in feet first. And, uh, and it was just uh, immediately I knew that that's what I had to do. And this is, this is so, so, so finally I can, I can unify the father and the son. If you think about it in terms of archetypes and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then suddenly, oh, oh my gosh, I can, this thing that I was born to do that I have the skill set for, I can actually not be raping the land and uh, treating these animals poorly. How awesome is that? I'm going to do that. That's cool. And you're actually bringing bringing a ushering in the future with this vision which ironically is is you know back to the future right it's just funny no i'm just thinking how like uh when you when you talked about the topsoil in illinois um it brings to mind um have you ever heard of wes jackson Mm-mm. from the land institute in kansas i'll send you a link very interesting uh, very kindred spirit uh, to what you're doing. Um, he's, he's a generation and a half older, but um, I came across him more than two decades ago in Atlantic Monthly. I read about him. He's, uh, he's trying to change the farming industry, um, which, which has this uh, um, tilling the soil, right. uh, ripping up the root structure, planting annual seeds that need that need to be propped up because they don't have the, uh, the hardiness of perennials. So he was trying to create, change the mindset to perennial farming, not ripping up the topsoil, land management. He, uh, m- more than two decades ago, he went to uh, the Fermi lab out west of uh, Chicago, where they mm-hmm. have um, tens of acres um, above ground, um, you know, ground above the nuclear accelerator, the atom splitter that they used down there. Nothing was happening. And so his goal was to reestablish the Native American prairie, which most people have never seen because it's like six, eight feet tall. With, And so um, it's, I went out there to look at it, uh, uh, I don't know, about nine months ago with my son, we were out there because my wife's family is still out there. And we were visiting and we went and took a look. And it, it's it's still a long way from, the glory of how the prairie used to be, but it's just an interesting thing. He's been a voice in the wilderness. I don't know how much traction he's gotten, but I, I love his heart and I love his goal, what he's doing. So well, it's definitely picking, it's picking up so much right now. The, uh, the, the regenerative voices are, are becoming much more heard. I, I know General Mills just uh, in the last year uh, went, uh, made a commitment to go 25, 30% regenerative within five years or something like that. So, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. So you, yeah. you keep using the word regenerative. How could you make that, um, appealing to the consumer? Like does the consumer, do they understand what that word means? Do they, do they understand the benefit of that? I'm kind of trying to figure that out in my head. That's a great question. And there are a couple of interesting aspects with that. Number one, um, 
and this actually might help. Uh, number one, people know sustainable, right? Yeah. But yeah. sustain, but sustainable is not good enough. We don't want to sustain this this terrible low uh, uh, organic matter, low you know fossil fuel input. Uh, uh, system that we have we don't want to sustain that we want to make it better we want to improve it and so that's where regenerative has sort of come about but the problem with regenerative is that number one it's having the same issue that organic had is that it's being co-opted by people who are actually not regenerative and right. then number two it's being greenwashed to the point where it's just about soil regenerative is not just about soil in my opinion regenerative is about regenerating the way we see agriculture about regenerating the socio-cultural and socio-economic implications of agriculture, you know, and having a, a nation of small farmers and ranchers instead of four mega corporations that control all the slaughterhouses. So the people who take their calves to the sale barn get 11 cents on the final dollar that's spent on that on that beef. Yeah. You know, so what we're trying to do with, so to answer your question, yes, regenerative is too clinical. It's got too many syllables. It's not sexy enough. Right. Um, right. And um, and it's hard for people to say. Yeah, I think of um, I think of uh, in many many moments in time, uh, people have tried to articulate an idea, and it wasn't until they got the right language that it took off, like open source. Mm -hmm. That until that clicked around '92, people were struggling with that movement, and then open source took off when they had that label. It's um, it helped me a lot when you were describing earlier. Um, that the cow is a key, cattle is like a key piece of, of the symphony. It's a key piece. And when you take the, the cow out and what the, the cow is more than just beef, I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, it's, it's not something that you think is relevant to you if you're just living in the suburb and you buy red geometric shapes that are shrink-wrapped, then a cow is more than beef. What does that mean? But when you understand what it means, I think I think the penny drops really quick. Yes, it's, uh, it's, uh, I mean, there. people, when people get it, they seem to get it. And that's why I like to use the word, uh, and I, probably not a sexy word, but eco-necessity. So, I mean, uh, so yeah, I, the cattle are an eco-necessity and we're gonna have to figure out how to do it without fossil fuels so that we can put beef um, on the plate for people. And, the, you know, it's like, we don't need fewer animals. We need more animals. And all of the, all of these people, um, this, this is why I think the socio-cultural aspect is so important. Like we need way more people who are out there with their 50, 100 cows instead of the people who are hired by Simplot to go watch these 10,000 cows that then go into uh, the backgrounding lot up in um, Boardman, Oregon, so they can eat the rejects from the McDonald's French fry plant. I, I, I think um, seeing, seeing it holistically without having to take a graduate course in it is kind of the challenge. People have asked me, you know, did, did you get educated in this? It's like, well, no, I just read everything I possibly could on it. And I have a, I have a propensity to understand it. So, I mean, I had kind of an advantage from the very beginning. But, uh, but you know, you're absolutely right. There is a trend. And this is why I love so much the notion of freezer beef. This is why uh, the, it, what, this is, I think, the, the thing that ties it together. Like, instead of buying individual cuts, 
you know, I'm going to have a couple of T-bones for dinner. So I go to the store, buy two T-bones. You know, mm -hmm. I, I love the idea of people going to their freezer and pulling it out of their hundred pounds of beef that are in the freezer. It's, you know, it's much more, um, you save money doing it that way. You typically get local beef doing it that way. And that's also the only way that you can have uh, animals because it's illegal to sell uh, um, basically on-farm kill animals in cuts. So if I want to sell, if I want my animals to be harvested, slaughtered, killed, whichever word you want to use, on-farm, and then sold to the consumer, the consumer has to own that portion of the animal before they are killed so that it is then mm. exclusively available to their household. It, because if it's on farm, we don't have the infrastructure for a USDA approved uh, certified person to look at that animal while it is uh, being slaughtered and make sure there's yeah. nothing wrong with it. And, you know, so uh, we sold um, 28 butcher animals uh, this year. They're going to be harvested in, in November and they're almost, almost exclusively going to be harvested on farm and people will take a quarter, a half or a whole. And, uh, my profit margin is, is way lower because I'm not selling cuts, but also at the same time, um, my, uh, my animals are having a much better ending. You know, they're just, we just put them in a pen where they're eating grass and, and it's lights out instead of throwing them in a trailer, taking them to a strange location, throwing them in with a bunch of animals they don't know, and then getting slaughtered on a concrete floor surrounded by people they don't know. What I love is what I find interesting is that, you know, these are sophisticated concepts, right? And you're taking these sophisticated concepts, complex ideas to the, to the average, you know, consumer, and, and you're communicating that over TikTok. And, and TikTok as general as a channel, as a social media channel is, is very interesting as well. I think it's, it, it, it starts out as a social media network, right? But I feel like it's been positioned a little bit more into a place where content gets created not necessarily the only place it gets distributed because I'm seeing TikTok videos on LinkedIn, I'm seeing them on Twitter, I'm seeing on Instagram, they're going everywhere, but they get created there. And so that's kind of an interesting position when it comes to social media, but kind of going back to what you're doing with TikTok, you're taking these massive concepts and you're just giving these little bite-sized pieces of content. Uh, I'd love to hear maybe a little bit of like backstory. What's your reasoning? What's your thought behind that? How's that been playing out as far as kind of the overall strategy? Uh, well, um, my wife really uh, encouraged me to get into TikTok. I think primarily because she was sick of me talking to her about it. <laughs> uh, and uh, but no, it's it's I, the, the thing I love about TikTok are, are a couple of things. It, it forces you to give value because the, the algorithm will not recognize anything you're doing if you're not giving value and people aren't paying attention to it. And it has forced me to, as you mm -hmm. said, to distill these complex issues into a soundbite that's digestible but also still preserves the integrity of the concept and uh so that's that's been a, such an amazing gift for me to be able to um practice that now i've made a couple of hundred videos mm -hmm. probably now a couple 250 something like that and <laughs> and it and it and it touches it, it touches many different aspects of you know yeah. it, it, it touches everything from um the beef aspect, it touches the regenerative aspect, the soil aspect, and it also touches the, how are you going to start an agricultural organization from nothing, you know? And then you get into uh, intention, and then you get into manifesting things, and then you get into taking action and watching where help mm -hmm. comes from. So TikTok in these 59 second videos has given me the opportunity to 
explore not only agriculture and regenerative agriculture and beef, but also my own thoughts, my own psyche. I'm trying to go back because I don't want to lose it. You said something about um, how how the cattle was slaughtered. You said on farm, because mm-hmm. that's a very non-clinical, very appealing idea, right? Because it sounds it sounds uh, more authentic. It sounds more grassroots. It's it it just every way that you could interpret that is a positive way, you know. So that always really having your antenna up for that kind of language. And sometimes, sometimes somebody says it, sometimes you stumble upon it and, and really trying to figure out like the best way to get this idea. I mean, I love what you were saying about TikTok because it really does. It allows you to explore one facet at a time. But um, I mean, if we gave you like, like four espressos and let you run, this subject is huge, (laughs) right? It's huge with a million facets. And, um, so TikTok really is is wonderful for that. Um, you, you you know you can go and start to watch two or three or four, and next thing you know, you've watched thirty. There's a couple of things I wanted to explore. We talked a little bit about the consumers, right? And and this pandemic really has accelerated the direct to consumer channels, you know, and that kind of distribution. Um, however, we're seeing this, this uh, I don't say conflict, but this tension between the message and the audience, right? Because it seems like the audience is, you know, this urban, um, you know, conscious uh, consumer, but uh, they don't have freezers, right? They have, you know, small little apartments, and I'm, you know, from New York as an example you know I got a closet of a house and how does that how does that play out is that even an interest is that not really your consumer you're not chasing that type of customer help help us understand the kind of that aspect and Brian if you want to kind of give some more guidance to this this theme I I think I think think you kind of summed it up and and again we're making a sweeping stereotypical kind of assessment, right? That people that are uh, environmentally conscious, conscientious consumers are more urban, educated. It's not necessarily true, but that is a a segment for sure. And they just don't have a freezer that size that they could that they could get a quarter or half an animal, or maybe they do, but but not a lot of them. And then even as you go into the suburbs, you got to have the right kind of freezer, right? I mean, if you have a if you have a so-so freezer and the meat doesn't freeze or stay frozen, or, you know, so it's really there has to be a mindset of like um, you like to pick fruit, you like to can fruit, you like to you like to buy apples, you like to um, that that preservation mindset. Um, and it's interesting because the idea of what what do they call it? Um, stuffing the cupboard that's something people are doing more now just out of a a, just out of a just a a lack of certainty like they want to make sure that they have what they need so you can see how that's becoming less of an extreme mindset and more of a common mindset so that things are things are things are moving and evolving as as we speak well what i what the number one um what i would say is that i think it's a regulatory problem like I would love to sell cuts 
uh, from On Farm Kill. I would love that. That would be that would be much better for me as a producer. In fact, Wyoming just uh, passed a law that allows their ranchers to do that. Um, it's called the Food Freedom Act, I believe. And I would love to um, uh, slaughter an animal, deliver it to a uh, grocery store in an urban area, and then people could come and, and grab the animal. And maybe they could have 50 or 75 farmers who, who supply that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then the other aspect, which is this, the, the, the sort of uh, prepper stuff, the pantry aspect, is also, I think, really interesting. And it, the thing that pops into my mind with that is the notion of what if somebody in, you know, I don't, wherever you live in New York, um, bought or rented a warehouse space and put in a ton of freezers. And yep. so, I mean, that's the way it was in the, in the, in the old days, right? In the 50s, my, my dad tells me about when he was a kid in the, in the 50s, you know, mom would go down to the freezer, uh, drive down or walk down to wherever the freezer was, probably at, at or near the butcher, get some of their meat and bring it home for dinner. So, so it's, a business, it's a business extension idea for all the, 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 the places that are set up for wine. Just build an extra room and you can put your beef in there too. I you know it's interesting you're saying this because I, I was I was afraid that my imagination, I was kind of running feral, thinking um, strategic alliance, creating a middleman, creating a new business opportunity to to be able to take the bulk and then break it down and offer it in smaller amounts uh, uh, to those customers. Um, so there are there is a potential for for uh, you know, a new business model to insert itself into the process um, so that you can you can uh, appeal to even a wider, a wider audience. Um. We have this really interesting opportunity now that over the last hundred years or so, we've we've really done a great job of using technology to overpower nature in the short term. You know, and to, and to sort of externalize the consequences that are kind of waiting out there in the hinterlands to come back and get us. Yeah. And but but instead we help we we can use technology to mimic nature instead of trying to overpower nature. And we're going to find that that gives us such better return all the time. And uh, mm -hmm. that I mean that's the mm -hmm. primary reason that I use uh, electric fences so extensively. I use polywire uh, polywire on reels and. Um, energizers with, that are typically either battery or solar, or if I'm near a, a power outlet, you know, you plug it into the power outlet. So we're using that technology to mimic nature instead of trying to overpower it. Interesting. Mm. That's so, very interesting. Um, couple, couple things. I know we're running up short on time here. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So you, you let us know how you're doing on time on your end, but there's a couple things I wanted to explore we talked a little bit about the consumers, right? And, and this pandemic really has accelerated the direct to consumer channels, you know, and that kind of distribution. Um, however, we're seeing this, this, uh, I won't say conflict, but this tension between the message and the audience, right? Cause it seems like the audience is, you know, this urban, um, you know, conscious uh consumer but uh they don't have freezers right they have you know small little apartments and i'm you know speaking from new york as an example you know i got a closet of a, of a house 
And how does that, how does that play out? Is that even a, an interest? Is that not really your consumer? You're not chasing that type of customer? Help, help us understand the kind of that aspect. And Brian, if you want to kind of give some more guidance to this, this theme. No, I, I, think, I, think, I think you kind of summed it up. And, and again, we're making a sweeping stereotypical kind of yeah. assessment, right? That yeah. people that are uh, environmentally conscious and conscientious consumers are more urban, educated. It's not necessarily true, but that is a, that is a segment for sure. And they just don't have a freezer that size that they could, that they could get a quarter or half an animal, or maybe they do, but, but not a lot of them. And then even as you go into the suburbs, you got to have the right kind of freezer, right? I mean, if you have a, if you have a so-so freezer and the meat doesn't freeze or stay frozen or, you know, so it's really, there has to be a mindset of like, um, you like to pick fruit, you like to can fruit, you like to, you like to buy apples, you like to, um, that, that preservation mindset. Um, and it's interesting because the idea of what, what do they call it? Um, um, stuffing the cupboard. That's something people are doing more now, just out of right. a, a, just out of a, just a, a lack of certainty. Like they want to make sure that they have what they need. So you can see how that's becoming less of an extreme mindset and more of a common mindset. So that things are, things are, Things are moving and evolving as as we speak. Well, what yeah. I what I, the number one, um, what I would say is that I think it's a regulatory problem. Like I would love to sell cuts uh, from on farm kill. I would love that. That would be that would be much better for me as a producer. In fact, Wyoming just uh, passed a law that allows their ranchers to do that. Um, it's called the Food Freedom Act, I believe. And I would love to um, uh, slaughter an animal deliver it to a uh, grocery store in an urban area and then people could come and, and grab the animal. And it may, maybe they could have 50 or 75 farmers who, who supply that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then the other aspect, which is this, the, the, the sort of uh, prepper stuff, the pantry aspect is also, I think, really interesting. And, it, and the thing that pops into my mind with that is the notion of what if somebody in, you know, I don't, wherever you live in New York, um, bought or rented a warehouse space and put in a ton of freezers. And yep. so, I mean, that's the way it was in the, in the, in the old days, right? In the fifties, my, my dad tells me about when he was a kid in the, in the fifties, you know, mom would go down to the freezer, uh, drive down or walk down to wherever the freezer was probably at, at or near the butcher, get some of their meat and bring it home for dinner. So, so it's, a business, it's a business extension idea for all the, 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 the places that are set up for wine. Just build an extra room and you can put your beef in there too. I know it's interesting you're saying this because I, I was I was afraid that my imagination, I was kind of running feral, thinking um, strategic alliance, creating a middleman, creating a new business opportunity to to be able to take the bulk and then break it down and offer it in smaller amounts uh, to those customers. Um, so there are there is the potential for for uh, you know, a new business model to insert itself into the process um, so that you can, you can uh, appeal to even a wider, a wider audience. Um, so I, Bogey, did we, did I, did I steer him off? 
what you were asking or did that no happen? i think i think that's fine i think i mean we're, we're just trying to you know we're, we're trying to have a discussion right we're exploring different no, things let's, let's Brody, what, do you, what do you what what question do you want to answer what are you trying to to discover i mean do you, are you trying to figure out how you're going to get the beef in, in new york uh, there's well there's two aspects of it that's 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 it <laughs> yes actually yes <laughs> no well i think there's two aspects because your your vision is huge you have a very magnificent vision and we love that vision we're like we want to partner with brands that have that kind of vision and that kind of character and and and, and you know and and the balls to do it you know what i mean and so that is just fascinating but then it's like all right well how do we actually do it um who do we who do we need to communicate this message to and that's where we where that's our when our gears are start to think you know our starts rolling we're like thinking okay well we have the consumers there we have the consumers there the city dwellers are just like the urban you know city life is just a huge opportunity but how do you get to them right and how how does that make sense from a from a business practice perspective because we're looking at you know, you know your costs we're looking at the what the nine dollars per pound you know or eight eight fifty five per pound when you buy the whole share and that's that's a, that's, a that's a very good deal and how do you make that deal available to a person like me living in you know in the new york city and to to get to your vision at some point that discussion needs to happen right i'm, like, I'm not i'm not gonna have ten thousand cows in the national forest without the ability to sell them to people absolutely right right i i totally get that and um you know that it's it's i think no there there's the big uh, choke point obviously is processing so it's if you want to sell cuts you got to be usda certified if you want to be usda certified you have to go through five years of red tape and hell with the usda so we have in central oregon we have two usda certified slaughterhouses and let's you know let's uh table the fact that you know you have to trailer these animals to a horrifying last experience as they're mm -hmm. as they're harvested for for us to consume them you, you put that fact aside and you still have a slaughterhouse that is backed up for two years you have if you want to get a date wow. in a usda slaughterhouse you have to book two years in advance and how are you going to inventory your animals and how are you going to uh, make sure you have that many because if you don't have that many they're not going to give you that many slots again and because they're because they can make a phone call and and suddenly uh, there are 10 people in line going, ooh, let me get my one animal in here this, at, during this slot. And there's another issue that nobody wants to be beef cutters. And particularly in Central Oregon, they want to expand. There's a butcher uh, called um, Butcher Boys in Primeville. And they want to expand, but the living costs in Central Oregon are so high that they can't pay somebody what is necessary for them to live here. You know, because this is the unbelievable place to live, and the the biggest income uh, uh, producing part of the the economy, at least it was about ten years ago, are people's retirement accounts. So people make their money uh, in Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and then they retire here, and suddenly all of this urban money is is fueling fueling the growth. So um, the, I think the problem is primarily regulatory. You know, we have to find a way so that we can allow uh, on-farm kill to sell individual cuts. And the the slaughterhouses that currently have a stranglehold on the market are not going to allow that. They are going to fight tooth and nail to prevent. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're going to say, "Oh, it's in the in the interest of public safety. Oh, it's in the interest of of." Uh, 
of yeah. making sure that everybody's safe. But you know, two, two consenting adults should be able to make an a, a exchange money for food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's part of what we were imagining was wondering if the 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 co-op uh, construct was something that would uh, possibly emerge uh, to 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 be a kind of a more of a uh, grassroots uh, distribution system instead of the institutional one. Um, we know that that the co-op from farms and everything is not regulated the same way, of course, but that's been a huge appeal to people to go once or twice a week and get your box of cooperative produce and and uh, and maybe maybe it's building on that construct. Um, we, we've even seen, uh, not sure yet, but we've even seen evidence of money going into cooperative constructs so that they might go national. I mean, a venture venture capital company doesn't put money into something unless they see scale, you know. And so we were just, so it's interesting that this very quickly then expands. Um, it's already expansive and now it expands into things like distribution, regulation. It's a monster. Mm. It's a big thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. You got your, right. work, you got your work cut out for you. My, my mind went through a couple of uh, phases as you were talking there. Um, and one of the phases is, um, rather than having a brand that goes national because we uh you know the transportation costs and the fossil fuel yeah. input for that are so massive what i would love to see is is a 50 brands that are regional throughout the i mean maybe they can be owned by one company or or whatever mm -hmm. but uh i would rather that not be the case uh so and so then obviously my cattle in mind goes to okay so you have 10,000 animals in the national forest what are you going to do with those animals during the winter? Okay, well, you gotta have winter ground for them that's not in the national forest because it's largely gonna be covered in snow and inaccessible and inhospitable. So the, the winter is when you put them down on the perennial farm grounds and then you fertilize during the winter with the perennial on the perennial farm grounds and then summer, spring comes up, you go back up in the mountains and over the summer, that fertilized ground, you no-till in your crops and, um, so I, I just I just kind of put that together in, in my mind yeah. as we were as we were talking here about how it, you know you expand not only from um, maybe the co-op is not only the people who have sold the cattle and produce and but also the people who own the cattle can put the cattle together and run them together yeah. in in this organized manner. Um, so yeah, we definitely have our, our work cut, cut out for it. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves, but I know for a fact that if I don't start at the end and work towards it, it's not going to happen. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the one thing that's, that is under, underneath all of this, um, and I'm not sure, I've, I've, had, I've had a bit of luck being sort of trained by smart people to um, analyze my belief systems and to recognize that they are uh, limiting what the fabric of reality can unfold before you. Um, I mean, I remember the first time that I actually uh, noticed something like that. I was uh, 10 or 11 years old and I was uh, playing football. And it was like the last play of the game. We were down by like, I don't know, five points or something like that. And I was, this was, this was before puberty and I just happened to be faster than everybody. And um, so I remember being in the, in the huddle and I was just like, I was like, coach, coach is going to give me the ball on an end around and I'm going to score a touchdown. Coach is going to give me the ball on an end around. And, and then he called the play and end around to me. And then I went and scored a touchdown. 
So I was like, okay, so I can do whatever. I, if I just have to sort of uh, b- believe it into existence, it can yeah. happen. And, yeah. um, and I think that, that most people are so busy trying to protect what little they have that they don't open up mm-hmm. to open up to the possibility of what they can create. This is why I love the, the name of your, um, um, your podcast so much because one of my foundational philosophies that I got from a guy named Jordan Peterson, you probably have heard of him yeah. is, is, oh, yeah. is, is that, you know, do not do what makes you happy. Do what is meaningful. Do not do what is expedient. Do what is meaningful. And I completely yeah. agree with that because you know, it's happiness is a byproduct of a, of adopting of a meaningful life as defined by adopting excess responsibility. And until that's as much as you can hold. And then when you learn how to hold that, get some more and hold on to that. And then occasionally that'll give you some happiness and that's fine. That's enough. You don't need. So I, I love that. I love it's like not be happy. It's, it's a be, be meaningful. I, I think that's just, I think that's just wonderful. And, and, and being meaningful is, is the, I think one of the keys that helps unlock the reality uh, of the intentions that are set before people. So, so good on you for, uh, for naming your podcast that. Wow, man, that you're not going to get a better ending. <laughs> I mean, I could keep going with this, but that, I would just go downhill from there. That's true. That is so true. So true. We'll yeah. we'll be in uh, we'll be in Portland dropping off beef in December. I'll I'll send you an email and, and Do that. come grab some steaks. Yeah, I'll be in Portland as well. So let's make that happen. Let's make All right. that happen. That would in be December. great. Absolutely. I'll okay, I'll put it on my calendar. <laughs>